It is good to see you in the Lord's house this morning, and we trust, of course, that uh, the Lord has spoken to your heart already. And for those perhaps that are listening and watching via the internet, along with our congregation, turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. Focus on a, on a long passage that Peter began back in chapter 2 uh, and verse uh, 13 of chapter 12, 12 and 13 of chapter 2, and then carries through the end of verse 12. He kind of explains it a, a little bit in verses 13 and 14. And then he goes back in, uh, to a wonderful doxology about the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no doxology without theology. And toward the end of chapter 3 is one of the deepest and most important focuses on the theology of Christ found in Scripture. So we'll be there in, in a few weeks, and we're looking forward to that. Right now, we are closing out the passage that he began about submission. And he's taught us about submitting to government authorities. He's taught us taught us about uh, submitting to masters and employers. He's taught uh, us about uh, believing wives, submitting to unbelieving husbands, and believing husbands leading their unbelieving wives. Now he is teaching us about submission in the church. It all coalesces and comes together in God's house. And as I mentioned to you last Sunday morning, this is the believer's safe place. There is no greater place of safety or peace found in our lives during the week as in the Lord's house on his day, on the Lord's day, every Sunday, all day. So we want you to follow along. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, it's on page 1015 in the Pew Bibles. Follow along with us there. Reading again, verses 8 through 12, Peter writes, Finally, in summary... All of you be of one mind, having compassion for one another. Love as brothers, be tenderhearted, be courteous, be humble, rather, not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing, knowing that you will call to this, that you may inherit a blessing. For, and he quotes from Psalm 34, he who would love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. May God bless the reading of his holy word in our hearing this morning. And let's go to, once again to his throne of grace in prayer. Father, where we are ignorant, teach us this morning. Where we are needy, we pray that you would supply that need in the person of Jesus Christ, and then we pray that as believers you would make us like Christ, and as unbelievers, may they submit to their Savior. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, brother, first uh, slide, if you would. So Peter is writing to aliens that 
are suffering persecution. Now, I have reminded that persecution is not the same as suffering for a physical illness. And you need to keep that in mind. We've had numbers of those over the years here at Flat Creek, but that's not persecution. Persecution is uh, found outwardly, and it's also found inwardly. Go back, if you would, to the first chapter, and let's look at verse 6 of 1 Peter. He says, in this you greatly rejoice, talking about persecution. And this is antithetical. We don't want to rejoice in persecution. We don't want persecution. But Peter says, in this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, that you have been grieved by various trials. Now, the genuineness of your faith, why is there persecution? so that it may cause believers to focus on the beauty and the purity of their conversion and that it may force unsaved sinners to recognize that they don't have genuine faith. So that the genuineness of your faith, which is more precious than gold that perishes, though it be tested by fire, may be found to praise and honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So, that is the, if you're looking for a purpose statement or a thesis statement of 1 Peter, that would be one of the primary thesis statements. So that the genuineness of our faith. Now, the genuineness of our faith is worked out in the crucible of the church. Not worked out necessarily individually, although it is. It's worked out corporately in the church. So, Peter here's given instructions to brothers and sisters that are persecuted in uh, scattered churches that this is the way that you are to testify to a lost and dying world. Remember, 1 Peter 3 is evangelistic in its tone. So how do we want to introduce a lost world, a world that does not know Jesus, that cannot trump up internal faith to know Jesus. It must be delivered through the revelation of Jesus Christ. How does that happen? Through these five adjectives that Peter has mentioned here in verse 8. Now Peter's writing knowing that their hardships entail more uh, than persecution from without. There's always a problem internally for the believer. Always. Our response to outward persecution is controlled by our remaining sin within. It tempts us to think, to speak, and to act in an unholy manner. And all we need to do is look at verse 9. Notice what he says in verse 9, not returning evil for evil. So Peter would have been familiar with this because, as I mentioned to you a number of times, if you read these two verses, this is not a description of Peter prior to seeing the resurrected Lord. It's not a description of him. And in many ways, it's not a description of many people that claim to be believers. And so... 
We looked at uh, verse 6 of uh, chapter 1. Let's look at verses 13 through 16 as a reminder again. Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind. Now, what we're reading here in chapter 3 is a charge to the old gray matter. It's a charge to thinking. And we'll see that, especially when we come to the topic of brotherly love. Gird up the loins of your minds. Be sober. In other words, don't be flippant about your faith. And rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ as obedient children. So again, this is one of those thesis statements that he is providing for those that have been scattered abroad. Not conforming yourselves to the former lust. In other words... Not returning evil for evil, not reviling, not seeking retribution. That's the form of lust. We are, as believers, if we say and we claim Christ as Savior, we're different than the world and meant to be different than the world. Christ was different than the world. And he says, not conforming yourselves to the form of lust as in your ignorance. So one of the purposes of this epistle is to teach us because we were, at one time, all ignorant of what Christ expected of us. That's why we have the Word. And notice what he says, but as, ye, uh, as he who called you is holy. And so these five adjectives here, in verse 8 of chapter 3, identify to us some of the holy characteristics of our Savior. They are to be in our thinking they are to be, as we'll learn later on, in our gut. And this is unique, a unique call to the church. If you're here this morning and you're unsaved, or perhaps you're listening and watching and you're unsaved, I will remind you, you cannot trump these up. Oh, you may be occasionally humble, but not all the time. You may occasionally be in unity, but not all the time. And so these are characteristics of a true born-again believer. So the verses that we read here in uh, chapter 1 is our charge. Peter does not spend time explaining why trials happen. As I look on, on the congregation this morning, I know that none of you, when you've been persecuted for your faith, have ever said, why is the Lord putting me through this? We've all been like the Lord Jesus Christ, and we've knelt down in, in our Gethsemane and prayed, Lord, not my will, but yours be done. No, none of us have. Peter didn't. So he's not giving advice to the aliens on how to escape the trials. After all, Christ suffered. We find that at the end of chapter 2. He endured trials, and so are we. My life verses are Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off every encumbrance and the sin that easily entangles us, and let us run with patience the race set uh, before us. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus. Why? He's the author and perfecter of our faith, 
who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. As I look upon a congregation that is American this morning, not many of us have endured the cross. But Jesus did. He endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Praise the Lord that he is sitting there today. We are told that he lives, ever lives to make intercession for those of us that are born-again believers. So Peter writes to pilgrims to prepare for inevitable trials. And he says, I want you to prepare with sanity. I want you to prepare with steadiness rather than caving into the muddled minds that our present culture, actually the culture in Peter's time did as well, but to the muddled minds and impulsive emotions that easily, easily cause us to fall back into our remaining sins. Each day, we are reminded of our sinful weaknesses. If you and I go through a day and we don't contemplate how sinful we are, that typically is something that we need to remedy. Now, thankfully, in Jesus Christ, our sins are forgiven. But one of the evidences of a holy life is a sensitivity to our sinful weakness. We are fallen creatures in a world that's broken. And try as the politicians might, they're not going to change that. Standard of living may get better, you may make more money and all these things, but that doesn't change the fact that we live in a world of brokenness. For example, the vagaries of life. Why do certain people come down with certain diseases and others don't? Now, we could be like the friends of Job and say, the reason that they are ill is because they have sin in their life. Well, if you read the book of Job, you find that that had nothing to do with the testing of Job. But being self-righteous, that's what we do. The vagaries of life. And each and every family, each and every person here this morning has been exposed to the vagaries of life. And if you haven't, you will. The bills that come due, far more rapid than we think. Illnesses, conflict. Peter's talking about that here. Stupidity. Not only the stupidity of other people, and there are a lot of stupid people in the world. I count myself as one of them. But our own stupidity. the burden of wrestling with our remaining sin. Paul said, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of sin? So if Paul wrote that, then we can 
stand up and shout amen. Indeed, who will deliver me? How do we cope in this world? That's what Peter is saying. We need minds that are transformed from thought patterns and emotions that rob us of thinking and responding like our Savior. How does that take place? Through the evidence of the revelation of God's Word. Being exposed to gospel preaching and teaching. Being exposed to godly men and women. Being exposed to folks that pray for you and desire that you grow spiritually. A couple of years ago, we preached through 2nd and 3rd John. You remember that? And one of the evidences of growing in grace and knowledge is praying for the spiritual healing of God's people. Now, we spent a great deal of time praying for the physical healing. How often do you pray for the spiritual healing? How often do you pray for the spiritual healing of yourself? That comes back to being reminded of our sinful weaknesses. That thinking, Peter writes about here, that response is submission. Submission. When our minds are focused on evil, returning evil for evil, when our minds are focused on reviling rather than blessing, then we're not thinking godly. We're not thinking Christ-like. And that's what Peter's saying. In this passage, this long passage, which began back in verse 13 of chapter 2, is focused on Submission. Next slide, if you would. So last Sunday morning, we started to look at the five adjectives in verse 8. And we uh, <clears throat> looked, first of all, at uh, like-mindedness or the harmony that, is, that Peter is teaching here to the aliens that are scattered abroad, these folks that are under persecution. If you want the good life, and he talks about that in the quotes here from Psalm 34, if you want the good life, then you must have an obligation. You must understand that we as believers are obligated to bless, beginning first at the church, and we are obligated to bless each other. And so Peter here in verse 8 illustrates the positive attitudes of a good life. He begins with harmony, and we talked about this uh, in detail last Sunday morning. The word like-mindedness or the translation is translated into English similarly in other passages of Scripture, but it's the only time the Greek word is found in the New Testament. It's a common mindset. Again, not individual tastes. And each of us have individual tastes. But it's not individual taste. It's not an individual gift or habit. It is rather a harmonious approach to the same thoughts and assessments of the essentials of a good life. These five adjectives that he's talking about here. And that, of course, is the understanding. We talked a bit about this last Sunday morning, about being focused on the unity in doctrine. So I have the word God up here, which would be an understanding of, 
uh, of the Lord Jesus Christ through the triune God, salvation, character, and virtue. And these five adjectives help us to understand that, help us to define that. Second word that he uses here is the word uh, in the uh, New King James that says having compassion for one another. Sometimes it is translated sympathy, so that's what we want to focus on here. The second grace that is found here is we are to be sympathetic. We're to exercise compassion with other people. We're not to be pathetic people. Nothing irks me anymore than to hear a believer or someone that claims to be a believer have this pathetic outlook on life. Gordon was teaching about this this morning. Always, always depressed about themselves and their relationship to the Lord Jesus Christ and then bringing others down. That's not sympathy. Sometimes we desire sympathy. That's not what Peter's talking about. The word here, again, four out of the five words are found only here in the New Testament. It's feeling what others feel. You could use the word empathy, perhaps empathy being uh, you've experienced it before and and you can readily identify with others. Sympathy or feeling with others so that you can respond with sensitivity to need. Being sent, Sometimes people just want you to listen. But again, if you are listening, and if you're the one talking, be reminded that you're not to be pathetic. The Lord Jesus Christ did not have a great deal of empathy for his disciples being pathetic. And you'll find that in the Gospels. He did have a great deal of sympathy and empathy for people who were ill and infirmed, could not help their station in life, but not his disciples. We that are members of the church are the disciples of Christ. True sympathy is, is a fairly quiet, time-intensive way of, of being helpful to others that are suffering. You know, often you hear, well, you, you, I, I know what you're going through, and so sometimes we do. Oftentimes we don't. So being an individual that is going to suffer with someone else, that's the definition, that's the next to last bullet there, the definition to suffer with someone else, to share with others' sufferings. Now, remember he's talking about persecution, That's the key element. Context is keen. He's talking about the persecution of aliens. We are to sympathize in the church and outside the church. And Flat Creek should be known as a sympathetic church, one that is willing to listen one that is willing to offer the hope of the gospel. Listening is important, but offering the hope that is in Jesus Christ is, because chapter 3 is an evangelistic chapter, that is our motivation. 
Now, we talked about our own spiritual weaknesses. One of the things that sympathetic believers do is they understand the fallen, fallenness of humanity. Don't be swept up into the vernacular over the past 100, 150 years that man is increasingly getting better. This was the thought just before World War I took place. That we are arriving as a, at a civilization, as a civilization at a point where we are about as good as we can get, and then World War I happened. And 50 million people lost their lives. So let's not be muddled in our minds about that type of thinking. The world is fallen, and you and I are fallen. We need to sympathize with people because we at one time, Paul said in Ephesians 2, walked according to the prince of the power of the air and were by nature disobedient children. And when you look at a lost and dying world, that is the morass that the overwhelming majority are in. They walk according to the prince of the power, and they don't think it because that's natural. Not supernatural, it's natural. And they were disobedient children. Next slide. Sympathy means that we are to be like the Savior, who was sympathetic with those that required sympathy. And we are told in the book of Hebrews he continues to be a sympathetic high priest. We must share in the feelings of others. We must join in their sorrow and also join in their joy. Share in their joy. We need to be sensitive to the pain of the lost. Why? Because we were at one time lost. Sensitive to the anxiety of the lost. And most lost people, whether they tell you or not, are going to be anxious. Sensitive and tender-hearted toward the great need, their great need of a Savior. The same need that we had and still have. We, too, share being lost. We have been redeemed and need to share that with them. So when we talk about sympathy as believers, our life experience teaches us from Scripture that being sympathetic and compassionate comes from a submissive attitude. This is not something that we are naturally born with. Third thing he talks about, look what he says in verse 8. Love as brothers, brotherly love. Now I reminded you that in the first seven verses of 1 Peter chapter 3, he was talking to wives and husbands, but the word love's not found in any of those verses. And it's not until we get to the understanding of the teaching that Peter has for the church that we see the word love. 
The three types of love that are in verse 8. We've already talked about one, sympathy. Secondly, here, love as brothers or brotherly love. And thirdly, he'll talk in just a moment about being tenderhearted or being compassionate. Sympathy and compassion are emotional virtues. Jesus sympathizes with our weaknesses. The book of Hebrews tells us that we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who is tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. So Jesus understands temptation. He paid in accordance with God the Father for our sin. But he's not pleased when we sin. He understands it. He sympathizes, but he's not happy. He's not pleased with our sin. He shares our pain. He also overcomes sin. And because he's the God-man, he can be empathetic. Now, we taught several weeks ago that Jesus did not sin. We taught the impassibility of his sin, the impeccability of his sin. He cannot sin. Jesus feels with us because he is the God-man. One of the reasons, for the great reasons for the incarnation is that he became human, who being in the form of a man, Philippians 2 says. He's the God-man. He feels with us because he's the God-man. He also acts for us because he's the God-man. You see here the wisdom of God. We see here the omnipotence of grace found in the person of Jesus Christ. There is nothing impossible with God. There is no one out of the reach of God. This is the nature of who Jesus is. Next slide. Now the definition of this word, or the Greek word, Philadelphia, uh, uh, Philadelphia Philadelphia rather, means brother, brotherly love. And we know that we have a city here in the United States that uh, we, vi- we actually visited Philadelphia last September. <clears throat> Brother love is demonstrated in unselfish service. This is different from agape, and we're going to talk about this in a minute. It is demonstrated in models of harmony. It's demonstrated as being peacemakers, always bringing peace to the church. This is your safe place. This is where peace should occur. Now, the second word is compassion, which we'll see here in just a moment. We'll define it in a little more detail. Tenderheartedness is the New King James translation. It's understanding the pain of our fallenness of who we are and loving the lost in an unselfish way. And this must start in the church. People that don't go to church are not evangelistic.
doesn't matter what they say, they're not evangelistic. Evangelism is the lifeblood of the church. Go back to chapter 1. We looked at verse 6. We looked at verses 13 through 16. Let's look at verse 22. Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit and sincere love of the brethren. Now, how are you going to love the brethren if you're not in God's house? Professing believers that for years have not been involved in the church of the living God are not evangelistic. They, they offer no testimony to the body of Christ. We're going to partake of the Lord's Supper here in just a moment. What do the elements represent in the Lord's Supper? What does the, the wafer represent? What? The body of Christ. That's this. It's not this. How many folks that have laid out of church for years upon years do you know of that have partaken of the Lord's Supper? The juice represents the blood of Christ. Brotherly love. This is the element that's being taught here. This starts in the church. Now we dissect the word love. Four terms for love in the Greek. Agape, philia, storge, and eros. As if we could aim our love at targets. But this is the type of love I have. And these are defined, first of all, agape is a divine unearned love. This is the love that is disposed to us in the person of Jesus Christ while we were as far from Jesus as hell is from heaven. That's what sin means. We were as far from Jesus as hell is from heaven. And only the agape love can bridge that gap. Secondly, brotherly love. We're talking about it here within the church. Thirdly, storge is the familial love. And eros, of course, is passionate love. Three of these are found in the New Testament. The fourth one, eros, is not. Now, God doesn't segregate his love into corrals. This is my agape love, and I love this way. This is my... Uh, Philadelphia love I love this way this is my Storge love I love this way and this is the Eros love which is part and parcel of all these wrapped together and is meant to be shared as husband and wife we talked about that 1 Peter chapter 3 and those first 7 verses but we do because we're incurably legalistic well I have the right to love this person this way no you don't you have the right to or you have the responsibility, rather, you have the responsibility, rather, because of Jesus Christ, to love others lost with the agape love, to love the church with a brotherly love, and to love your family with a familial love. All of that is wrapped together. But hey, 
We want to dissect everything. For God so loved the world that he gave. He loves lawbreakers and desperate sinners despite their rebellion. And I'm glad he does. I'm glad he loved me. A law-breaking, desperate, rebellious sinner. This type of love is dispassionate. God's not moved by an emotion to love sinners. John wrote in 1 John 4, God is love. We know that for God so loved that he gave. That is the embodiment of the character of God. This love is who God is. He doesn't look down on somebody and say, well, I love this person, and I'm going to be choicy about who I love. No, that passionate love, God's dispassionate. It's who he is in character. It isn't prompted by emotion. You have a birthday party. And all your friends and your family come together. And then perhaps you receive gifts. And I remember when I was a kid, we, we, we didn't really have a party, but Mom would always fix out, our, uh, if we had a favorite meal, she would fix that meal for dinner that night. And uh, usually she would make a cake, and we'd have cake and ice cream. We didn't have this a lot now. I grew up in Rustburg, and those people are poor, all right? So we didn't have this a lot. From the evidence of what we know about that love, that familial love that is shared there, that was passionate. God's agape love is not based on his emotion toward us. It is who he is. I want you to understand that this morning if you don't under if you leave here and don't hear anything else I say. God's loving us is because he is love. You and I are not love. Only God. We have the capacity to love, but we are not love. He created humanity with emotions. And so when we look at love and the definition here, he's talking about brotherly, brotherly love, the shared love in the, in the church of the living God, and we love emotionally. I love you, first of all, because I'm commanded to love you. And secondly, I love you because you and I share an indebtedness to Jesus Christ. That's what Peter's saying. Love your brothers because they share an indebtedness to the same Savior that Peter shared. 
Loving in our culture refers primarily to an emotional attachment of more intensity than merely liking. That's not God's way. And really, that's not what Peter's teaching. We do a fair job of loving our families. But Jesus said, you think you've done something great because you love your families? He said, even the pagans do that. So God loves pagans. He loved us when we were as far from him as hell is from heaven. Next slide. So Peter was chosen by Christ. In fact, he told his disciples, he said, none of you chose me, I chose you. He clearly understood Jesus' command, not just to refer to emotions, but to acting rightly toward other individuals. That's what the word brotherly love means. It is the evidence of the minds grasping who God is in love and loving the church as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. We are to act rightly toward our adversaries. And how do we know that? Because of what he says in verse 9. Regardless of what type of emotions are involved. And one of the great examples of this is the parable of the Good Samaritan. The Samaritan, nowhere in that parable is the word love found. The Samaritan did what was right. That's brotherly love. Acting rightly in love toward our enemy is defined for us in verse 9. And we are taught that if we respond with insult, slander, and evil reviling, it doesn't please God, and it's unloving. Well, I'm going to tell them a thing or two because I'm going to tell them the truth. Well, the Scripture says we speak the truth in love. So we must do it with a single-mindedness, with compassion, with brotherly love, with tenderheartedness, and with humility, which is humble-mindedness. Usually, when we make the statement, I'm going to tell so-and-so what, what I think because they need to hear what the truth is, that is not from a humble mind. Usually, it comes from the mind of, I know more than you know, therefore I'm going to set you straight. Look at the life of Jesus. And we see there, in the embodiment of the life of Jesus, the mind that Peter is teaching here. It all comes back to the Savior. As a believer, our life experience teaches us from Scripture that brotherly love is always exercised with submission to the ones that we declare that we love. Preacher, that's tough. Yes, it is. It is. The fourth element is compassion or tender-hearted. We've talked about this somewhat in sympathy. 
This word is found only here in the New Testament. It's the gut feeling. It's the inward emotion. In fact, the Old Testament would use this quite often. Literally, your belly. And the translation here is that you're to feel generous in your belly. You're to be willing to give as you are satisfied. Have a good meal, you're satisfied. That's the implication. Be well disposed to each other, which is the opposite of hypocrisy. Hypocrisy feigns love and it feels malice toward the other. And then finally, he said, oh, we quote here from Ephesians 4, be kind-hearted, tender-hearted, forgiving one another. Inner emotion is our deepest emotion. Gordon was teaching on this this morning. Our inner emotion from satisfaction deep within us. It's the heart of God who pitied, was kind-hearted and compassionate towards sinners. In fact, so compassionate was Christ that he wept over the sin of Jerusalem just hours before he was crucified. What a Savior we serve. Next slide. Finally, he says, be humble in spirit. Be humble-minded. And again, that's found only here in the New Testament. Authentic, lowly spirit. Comes back to understanding sin's weaknesses. We are utterly dependent on God for life, for breath, for intelligence, for emotional stability, for faith and control of our emotion. Utterly. We feel fragile and vulnerable. The vagaries of life. We know that we're not in control. We may have the illusion of control, but we're not. We know that we're sinful. We know that we are unworthy in ourselves apart from the free grace of God. You see, grace humbles us. Why do people hate grace? Or they may say, well, grace is a wonderful thing. They sing about amazing grace, but most people, grace is hated. Now, for believers, we love it. Grace humbles us. It shows us that but for Jesus Christ, we too would go and descend into a devil's hell. Grace humbles us. It makes us courteous to the Imago Dei. It doesn't make us self-assertive. Humility is suppressing the evil desire, Peter talks about in verse 9, the evil desire to be important and to put our interest first. You realize that most quarrels arise from the desire to have our way? Humility is the act of submitting to others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, 
made himself of no reputation. He took the form of a slave, of a servant, and he came in the likeness of man, humbled himself before the hands of his father. He had every right to avoid the incarnation. And he would have been right had he chosen to do that. But he didn't. Again, humility is not acting pathetically. It's a willingness to be submissive in like-mindedness, sympathy, brotherly love, compassion, and humble-mindedness. So his choice of words here for verse 8 are intentional. Like-mindedness only occurs when we are humble-minded. Next slide. We'll bring this to a close here shortly. All five adjectives are descriptions of who we are here. Having a common mindset, sympathetic in feeling, a family love, brotherly love, a kindly disposed toward others in the depths of our bowels, being satisfied to submit ourselves to others, to be humble in spirit and in mind. And so all five of these adjectives modify the use of the verbs found in verse 9. And so what we have in verse 8 are the positive attributes. What we have in verse 9 are the negative attributes. We're not going to be there. We won't finish this this morning. We'll look at this later on. So I ask you this question. Who emulates all of these attitudes, of these virtues? Only Christ. I love each and every one of you here this morning. Trust that you love me. But none of us, all the time, exercise these virtues. Who is the greatest living peacemaker? Christ. The example of that is the cross. The peace of the cross. Who was the ultimate sympathizer? The ultimate lover? The kind, ultimate kind-hearted, tender-hearted person? The humblest person of all, even to death? Our Lord Jesus Christ alone. What a Savior we serve. Charles Swinburne wrote this. Where do we see these lovely qualities scintillating most brightly? But in the radiant beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ himself, as, we walk, as he walked rather than this veil of tears. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, Isaiah wrote. He was meek and lowly of heart, loving the unlovely with a compassion that drew forth his pity and his power to relieve. He was gentle with the fallen, 
He was gentle with women and gentle with little children. He cared about broken hearts and broken homes. Still does. He's like the river that, fl that flowed out of Eden which compassed the whole land and where there was fine gold. His tears traced out his profound sympathy for all, even when they wouldn't have him. He went on to the cross to remove the cause of their griefs and make their deliverance possible. What a Savior. What a Savior. When is the last time that you prayed and blessed the Lord for being your Savior? When's the last time that you prayed without asking for something? just worshipped the magnificence of God and the omnipotence of grace found in Jesus Christ. When's the last time you did that? Just a few moments, the Lord's Supper. When's the last time that you thank the Lord for taking your and my despicable sin? upon himself. This is a remarkable passage that <laughs> in all honesty you would never think Peter would write this. But he did. Next slide. The attitude of every Christian is to be the attitude of Christ. No matter the circumstance, we're to be conciliatory, peacemakers, sympathetic, and sensitive to the pain of people. You want to love life and see good days? I know you do. This is the good life. What you gain out of life is predicated on what you feel inside. Your attitude. And if our attitude isn't right, then life is not going to give you peace. In fact, only Jesus will give you peace. It requires a right response to evil. We will look at this the next time we go into this passage. The right response to misjudgment, to condemnation, to cruelty and unkindness. We'll look at this passage later on. Thomas Brooks, one of the great Puritans, talked about Job earlier in the message this morning. But nowhere is the persecution and trials of any man more significant than in the trials of Jesus Christ. He wrote, The hands of God may be against a man when the love and heart of God are set upon him. Do you understand that? The hands of God may be against a man. This happened with Job. It happened with Joseph. It happened with Elijah. It happened with Jeremiah. 
It happened with Jesus. It happened with Paul. It happened with Peter. It happened with John. The hands of God may be against a man when the love and heart of God are set upon him to make us like Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your Son, the Lord Jesus. We thank you for this great passage of Scripture. We thank you that in your omnipotence you moved on the heart of Peter by your Spirit to convey to us the submission to each other with these wonderful words. Oh, how we have failed you miserably in living this out in the church. Forgive us, Father. And then make us, we pray, like Christ Jesus. There's any that's lost this morning, our prayer is that they just come to Jesus. The Spirit and the Bride say come. He that thirst, let him drink of the water of life freely. Jesus alone embodies these truths and Jesus alone can save. For believers today, oh God, teach me, teach each one that is here that the hands of God may seem to be against us when the love and heart of God are for us. This we ask in the name that is above every name, Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. We're going to sing a closing hymn this morning, and if the Lord has spoken to you, this is the time of response for his people, for all people. And if you're here today and you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, come, Jesus says. Come. That's the charge that he gives to lost sinners. Come. We can't save you, but with an open Bible, we can lead you to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, and you can leave here with that assurance this morning that Jesus died for your sins according to the Scripture, was buried, rose again the third day. Come, he said. It's a child of God. The Lord may be leading you into the fellowship of this church by uh, obedience and believer's baptism. That's the first step of obedience. We... uh, commend to you his command and charge you that you follow him in that command. Perhaps you want to unite on a statement of faith, a transfer of letter, whatever. We encourage you to come. As a child of God, all of these passages, we looked at them in Romans from Paul, this from Peter, we looked at them in 2nd and 3rd John. All these passages are tough. And the preacher, just get through this passage. Just get through this passage. Well, there's a reason that they're there. And that's to make us like Christ. (laughs) The Lord didn't save us and then rip out most of the New Testament so that we didn't have to worry about those things. This is his charge to us. So what number, Brother Vance?